0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Wire Talks, the Wire podcast where we discuss all things crypto. So whether you're veteran or crypto noob, we're all learning together. This is your host, Thomas Guria. I am, uh, continuing my soiree here into, uh, in Berlin. It's actually Friday right before ETH Berlin kicks off and uh, we're, we're past due on, on DapCon and, and Web3 Summit and exciting things like that. I am joined by a very exciting guest today. We have the CTO of Gnosis, Stefan George. Stefan, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Thomas.
0: Yeah, and before I start calling it something else, a lot of people call it Gnosis here, and then people call it Gnosis in America. What what do you uh, prefer?
1: We say Gnosis. Okay. The German pronunciation would be Gnosis. Yeah. At, originally, it's actually a Greek word, so mm-hmm. the original pronunciation would be Gnosis. Gnosis. But that's off the table. <laughs> Just say Gnosis. That's fine.
0: There's more important things to talk about today. Uh, and one comment I'll make right off the bat is I think Gnosis often doesn't get enough coverage in the US, although Gnosis is at the forefront of very pivotal technology in the Ethereum space. Uh, for example, you guys were the first implementation of a multi sig uh, wallet, I believe. And, you know, you you're the backbone of many ICOs collecting Ethereum. In 2017 and whatnot, and there's not enough recognition about that. You were the first implementation of a smart contract wallet, if I'm not mistaken, with Gnosis Safe. And then now we have uh, players like Argent and, uh, you know, it's become much more of a popular design pattern in, in the industry and first implementation of uh, a Dutch auction uh, system as well. So your tech is uh, incredible. And I'm just very excited to be talking to the CTO himself. <laughs> Thanks, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into the details of the technology, let's learn a little bit about yourself, Stefan. What's your background? How did you get into crypto? What's the Gnosis origin story?
1: Yeah, so I'm a computer scientist. I studied here in Berlin and in Potsdam computer science. And yeah, we I first got introduced to the Bitcoin white paper by my co-founder Martin uh, in 2013. And at that time, We were thinking about what could we build around Bitcoin? What kind of like product could be built around Bitcoin? And yeah, we analyzed the market at the time and realized there's no product available that allows to do peer-to-peer predictions. So we started building a framework for peer-to-peer predictions using Bitcoin as collateral. And yeah, this was very early in Bitcoin. I think the Bitcoin price was like $30 or so. (laughs) Hmm. And yeah, we took it quite far, but then ultimately in 2014, we came across Ethereum and we realized Ethereum has many advantages if you want to implement a prediction market system. Because of Bitcoin, you basically build kind of a regular prediction market system, just using Bitcoin as the currency, which also meant that the one running the software is always custodian of all funds. And that's something you don't necessarily want to be, Mm -hmm. especially not if you're a small company. And we saw with Ethereum, there's a possibility that the entire business logic doesn't have to run on our servers, but instead it can run on the blockchain itself in a smart contract.
0: And immediately it was clear to you that this is not feasible with the UTXO standard that Bitcoin is built on.
1: Yeah. So it was very clear that the business logic required to implement prediction markets uh, would be infeasible, almost infeasible, to build on Bitcoin with a very uh, restrictive set of instructions that you can use. Yeah, and smart contracts are much better suited for this. Mm-hmm. And even though Ethereum was still in its infancy, it was clear that bringing a product to market uh, that runs on Ethereum will require a lot less time than if we would try to do the same thing on Bitcoin.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, in that very early stage, uh, there were only a few projects kind of experimenting with Ethereum. I, I would say Augur was uh, perhaps another one, maybe uh, Numerai was that early as well, somewhat that early. Did you guys ever collaborate uh, with Augur or Joey from there at, at a very early stage? Who was sort of first with the idea of the prediction market? So that's Ethereum? a good
1: question. Uh, <laughs> so I would say we were definitely earlier working on prediction market systems. But they're not on Ethereum, but on Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah the idea to build it on Ethereum, I guess that I guess Orga was probably earlier than us. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why we decided to anyways go for Ethereum was mm-hmm. because we saw there is room for competition. Uh, there's room for competition on, for prediction markets on Ethereum. Uh, and we also saw at that time some flaws in the auger system where we thought this can be done better. I mean, since then, both systems evolved. I think nothing is as it it started with. And it's super exciting. We are, of course, in contact with Augur. At that time, we did not collaborate. But, of course, we were very well aware of what the others are trying to implement.
0: Yeah. I would say you were so early that it was almost dangerously early to be in the space. How did you have such conviction then that Ethereum is going to be the thing to, to house Gnosis and you had conviction just to ju- jump into the space uh, uh, the way you did?
1: So actually I would say I was not super optimistic at that time <laughs> we, because it was really very early and it was really tough to do anything. And the reason why or like one of the big reasons why for me it was like an easy decision was because Joe Lubin decided very early on to support us. So we had this idea of building a prediction market and when we pitched the idea to Joe very early on, already in twenty fourteen, consensus was just created, he told us guys you should join consensus and do it as part of consensus. Mm-hmm. And of course doing this as part of consensus is way less risk. Mm-hmm. So we were employees of consensus. And as such, we didn't have like any big risk.
0: Who else was at consensus that early? Uh, any other projects that you were rubbing shoulders with?
1: We were so early that there was really hardly anyone else. <laughs> we were, I think, employee number three and four. Oh, wow. So it was really the beginning of everything. But then, of course, other projects joined also quite just a few weeks or months later. I think Ujo, I guess, was also very early. Then, I guess, I think Truffle was already starting to be. Okay. I, it's like, I honestly don't remember anymore exactly uh, the timeline, but basically many of the like spokes that are now, like the main spokes that are still part of consensus were also created at the very beginning.
0: Yeah, really interesting. So you guys joined Consensus, And at what point do you split off from Consensus to work full-time as a separate entity, you know, on the Gnosis project? By the way, did you move to New York to be part of Consensus, there? Or was there even a New York office then?
1: So I think the first office in New York was so small, basically it could hardly fit anyone. But they moved on to another office and they moved again. So <laughs> um, there was enough office space. However, I always worked from Berlin. Mm-hmm. remotely. Martin was living in New York at the time, but in a different district. And so I think we basically both of us worked pretty much all the time remotely. Mm-hmm. And it was an advantage and disadvantage at the same time. <laughs> advantage, so we were kind of independent and we were always seen maybe a bit more independent than other projects in consensus, which gave us maybe a bit more flexibility. And I think Joe always trusted us. So if we needed resources, we could get those and it was really not a bureaucratic process at the time. And we had the goal, basically, when we saw that org was planning a token sale, <laughs> and I think they deserve a lot of credit for pioneering this, we were also obviously thinking about a possible ICO uh, with the goal to spin off from Consensus and create our own company.
0: Yeah, and when exactly was the ICO and when was the white paper published?
1: So this was 2017 in, okay. I think, April 2017, when we did the ICO. And it required a lot of preparation, so it took us way longer than we thought. I think the white paper was published a few months earlier, but it was always iterated. So yeah, I think that's... <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: And at the moment of ICO, what was the core mission then, and how has that mission sort of evolved to accommodate you know, market conditions and how the technology has evolved?
1: Right. So we always, like the goal of Gnosis was always to create a prediction market system that allows to aggregate information. So basically prediction markets should allow you to aggregate global knowledge into one number, which is the price for the different outcome token of an event. And our mission is to, and that actually didn't change, even though people think it's changed, (laughs) our mission is still to enable all the infrastructure required to get to this goal. And that's what we're working on since then.
0: Yeah. uh, I think people may think the mission has changed because you have several product lines, right? But they're all very interrelated into this core mission. Talk a little bit about how you compartmentalize the mission into these several product lines and how each of those lines kind of accomplish your end goal.
1: Right. So yeah, we started building a simple prediction market system and prediction markets are actually not that difficult to implement. Can maybe give an example how prediction market works. So let's say we want to do a a prediction on the election of Donald Trump. Will Donald Trump be reelected? There are two outcomes, yes and no. And now those outcomes are tokenized and um, those outcomes can be traded. And if you want to create those tokens, they can be issued. If you, let's say, put in one US dollar, you get a yes and a no token. And once the market is resolved, let's say Donald Trump was reelected, then you can redeem $1 for the yes token and the no token has no value anymore and now because they're tokenized you can trade them on the market yeah and it obviously it makes sense that both tokens should always sum up to $1 because you will never be able to redeem more than $1 but you know also both of them together will always be worth $1 and now when you're trading them basically the price reflects what the market believes is the probability of the different outcome so if you get the yes token for 80 cents and the no token for 20 cents basically means that the market believes don trump will be re-elected with the probability of 80 percent and now for you as uh, someone who wants to participate you have to decide for yourself what do you think is the probability of don trump being reelected. and if you think it's actually 90 percent then you're incentivized to buy everything on the market until the market reflects a price of 90 cents And now, of course, this could be done also in a fully centralized system without blockchain. The reason why the big vision is to do everything on this permissionless system is because ideally you have one market where everyone can trade because then you have basically the global information reflected in this one single market and the single prices for the single outcome tokens. And yeah, this, this should ideally be the best information you can get.
0: So you've gotten through an example of uh, prediction markets with uh, presidential elections. that are actually very, uh, sort of almost popularized by uh, the concept of presidential elections. What other uh, use cases do prediction markets have in a, in a broad sense?
1: Yeah, so there are different applications. So one that I just described is maybe can be used also as information discovery. You, know, you, want, to, you want to get information. It could also be, for instance, used to predict weather forecast uh, what will be the weather tomorrow <laughs> and then you could imagine everyone who is building a model to predict the weather forecast could use this information to trade on this market it can also be used to incentivize behavior uh, that's very interesting if i want someone to do something i can basically buy the opposite <laughs> mm-hmm. and allow the other person to kind of bet on this is actually going to happen and if this person is able to make it happen, then they get their payout.
0: And uh, uh, financial markets are a huge use case as well. Um, How are financial markets that are created on prediction markets different from just very traditional financial markets?
1: Oh, yeah. So basically, you could use prediction markets to predict the price of an asset. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's interesting is that the prediction market is always a zero-sum game, and so... What someone is winning, another person has to, has to lose. And so it's basically bounded loss and winnings. And a prediction market is always defined with a specific end date. So you, you know at some certain point of time, the tokens will have a certain value and then this value will not change anymore. But yeah, the, the main difference I would say if you compare it to options, for instance, is that they have a bounded loss and a bounded upside.
0: Yeah. And is there a way to have prediction markets that don't have a defined term or length or expiry date? Is there a way to roll them into, uh, so you have a perpetual position?
1: Uh, No, that's not easily possible. It's
0: not easily possible. Okay. Um, So take me through the flow currently. So how does someone use Gnosis to create a market right now?
1: So to be honest, right now, no one is using Gnosis to create a market. <laughs> uh, this will change hopefully very soon. Yep. But I can tell you the specification of how a market should be defined. Okay. So to create a prediction market, what you have to define first is an unambiguous event description. It has to be very clear for participants what you define and what they are uh, basically predicting on. So if I would just say, will Donald Trump be reelected? without any information about the date and the position for which he should be re-elected, this would be not precise enough. He could be re-elected for an organization (laughs) or anything else, uh, any other possible year, so this would be underspecified. So you have to be very, very clear in what the event is about. And this includes also the possible outcomes. So the possible outcomes should always cover 100% of of the possibilities. That there are. So in the binary markets, it's very simple. I say yes and no. But of course, there are many, uh, many markets where it's not easy to actually define all possible outcomes or it's easy to just forget about one outcome. Um, One way to go about it would be always to define just one outcome other. (laughs) But that's maybe also not necessarily the best option because your users or those that are participating on the market, they might not understand what others can cover or like how big the space of outcomes is, which is covered under other.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And how does resolution of a market occur on Gnosis?
1: Right, so for this, you need an Oracle. And yeah, we decided pretty early on that we will not work on Oracles, but we would like to just create a system which can be uh, compatible with other existing Oracles. And an Oracle basically just, allows to publish information that's available outside of the blockchain, on blockchain, basically any kind of event where the information is just not available on blockchain, like the election example. And uh, in case of uh, Gnosis prediction markets, you just define an Ethereum address, which is allowed to push this information into the prediction market system. And once this is done, anyone who has outcome tokens for this event can redeem those for possible payouts. Well,
0: what happens in a scenario where the resolution of the market is not clear, and there may be some sort of dispute. Let's say uh, Donald Trump gets elected as president, and then a week later, and the market is essentially resolved, and the yeses get paid out. But a week later, Donald Trump is uh, not president anymore. He's impeached, right? In that scenario, how does resolution occur on those markets?
1: Well, the resolution always depends on the oracle. And as soon as the Oracle publishes the information into the prediction market system, it's set. Mm-hmm. There is no possibility to revert it. No. So, unlike, answer.
0: so unlike Augur, you basically rely on very precise definitions of the market and you rely completely on a trusted Oracle.
1: Well, I would say Augur has also relies on very precise markets. Otherwise, it might take forever to resolve a market. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and well, if you wanted to, you could use Augur as an oracle in prediction markets run by Gnosis, or you could use other decentralized oracles like Kleros or Reality Yeah. as your oracle. It really depends on how the oracle is implemented. But no matter if you're using Augur or Gnosis, once the results actually defined and settled on, payouts can be done, but they will, it's not possible to revert any of them if for some reason new news pops up and people think actually it should be resolved differently. Mm-hmm.
0: And there's no, unlike Augur, there's no reporting system. You just rely on the one oracle.
1: That's right. right. So basically, okay. yeah, we don't work on oracles, yeah. Um, and yeah, we just try to be compatible with all existing oracles. And it's up to the user to decide which oracle to use. Mm-hmm. And I think that's it's better to be flexible because there are different use cases that require maybe different types of oracles. There are definitely like big uh, advantages and disadvantages of using a decentralized oracle. The uh, biggest disadvantage is that's very costly and uh, it takes a lot of time to resolve the market. If you're running a company uh, where users have to trust you anyway, to some extent, then it might be just easier to say, okay, we are the central party yeah, to resolve those markets and we can just leverage our already existing reputation because people trust us.
0: Mm-hmm. And are there any layer three applications that are built on top of uh, Gnosis prediction markets at the moment?
1: Some have tried, but it was not very successful until now. That's why we decided to iterate again over our prediction market framework. And now we are happy that we found a new way to describe prediction markets in a smart contract. We call it conditional token framework. It's basically only one contract that allows you to define all possible prediction markets. So before, like how Augur and also work is you have one contract that allows you to create the outcome tokens and to report the Oracle result and then uh, redeem winnings for the outcome tokens at some point. That's how Orga works and that's how the previous version of Gnosis worked or works. And now we came up with a new system where we kind of make it a bit more generic where you can again define in one contract, basically a registry for different Oracles. And then this contract can issue basically all possible outcome tokens for all of those events using the ESC-1155 standard, the multi-token contract standard. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to create like a single token contract for every possible outcome. And the cool thing is that we found a way to combine prediction markets in this contract. So previously, let's say you want to predict will Donald Trump be reelected under the assumption that
0: if uh donald trump will be reelected this coming election year for 2020
1: yeah but, yeah but under which condition like it could be basically a prediction market on i predict that donald trump will invade north korea okay yeah if you do this uh, this is true
0: oh i see what you're saying it's yeah. like uh it's really like two different prediction markets that compound market. okay yeah. okay If there's a China trade war that persists for uh, nine months and it draws down the S&P 500 below some level and Donald Trump uh, ends up winning the next election in 2020.
1: Would that be precise enough? Uh, Yes, basically the idea would be with this new prediction market contract, what we can do is we can create compounded markets, meaning you can basically connect different conditions that have been previously registered. So to give an example we had this prediction market on will Donald Trump be reelected? And now yeah, there could be a di- different prediction market on will the trade war between uh, China and US have an impact on S&P 500 by X points. Mm-hmm. Then now what the prediction market system allows you to do is to create new asset, mm-hmm. uh, which says will Donald Trump be re-elected under the condition that S&P 500 drops X points. And now you're able to to trade this. Yeah, and that's something that previously was not easily possible. Uh, And with the new system, yeah, you're able to basically combine all kind of uh, markets that have been previously registered in the system.
0: Okay, and that's possible because of the conditional token
1: design Right, Basically, we found a way to create identifiers. Like in this multi-token contract, you need identifiers to identify... Different outcome tokens, and we found a way to create identifiers which allow to yeah uniquely identify the outcome tokens and all possible combinations of all outcome tokens for all predictions.
0: Yeah, no, I'll include a link in the show notes. That when I was researching, I I stumbled on a blog post about this. Let's move on to another very important spoke in the Gnosis uh, mission, which is the actual trading of. The trading and fair liquidity of these conditional uh, token assets, right? And you've approached that problem. I think you, I think you try to work through that problem, perhaps with the order book model and the automated market maker model, and then you settled on the Dutch auction system. Take me through that journey. Uh, initially, when you were scoping out uh, the problem set and the potential solutions, how did you eliminate order book model and automated market model, market maker model as a potential solution?
1: Yeah, so we actually started with an automated market maker and we actually are still very convinced that this is an interesting model, but only for certain types of markets. So I was mentioning one of the use cases for prediction markets is information discovery. And the way how this works is that someone who wants to uh, get information, they can fund this automated market maker. It's a contract similar to Uniswap, I would say, that then provides liquidity for all possible outcomes. So at any point of time, someone can trade against this automated market maker and by doing so obviously shift the price to what he believes is the right outcome. And this basically this way, someone can buy the information from traders that are trading on it. And for this purpose, it's a perfect market mechanism. Mm -hmm. However, if you want to allow like larger volume trading or not have the disadvantage of just the slippage that you have, using an automated market maker, then you want to use something else. You could use something like an order book, but we actually never implemented an order book. And the reason for this is that if you want to do a decentralized order book, it's extremely costly because you have to pay for creating orders. um, You have to pay for canceling orders and you have the huge issue of front running. Anyone, especially miners are in the position to decide on the transaction ordering or like non-miners can incentivize miners to mine the transaction first by setting a higher gas price and by doing this front-running other people in the network to match certain orders. That's a system that doesn't really work like the order book system is a so-called continuous double auction and that's a system that comes from a world where we have centralization where we know information will be handled by one party and assuming this party behaves correctly, it will process all the requests, like depending on when they arrive or when they are done by users. And those assumptions just don't hold true if you are on a decentralized system like Ethereum, where there is no continuous time, there's only discrete time, which is a block time. And that's why we realized if you want to build a decentralized prediction market, then on-chain order books will basically not work and the lmsr market maker is great but only for the specific use case so if we actually want to make it work uh, we have to come up with new market mechanisms and yeah the dutch auction exchange or the dutch exchange was yeah our first attempt i would say to to create such a market mechanism and the reason why we decided to go for the Dutch auction exchange is because, well, we had already experience with Dutch auctions because we used the Dutch auction for our own token sale. And well, in the token sale, what did we do? We sold Geno tokens for Ether. So we basically exchanged Geno tokens and Ether. Mm-hmm. And now we apply the same mechanism for an exchange of arbitrary tokens. And that's what you did with the Dutch exchange. And yeah, the way how it works is first people have to submit tokens that they want to sell for the next auction. And once uh, a certain threshold is reached, the auction starts and it's a Dutch auction. So a Dutch auction works like this. You start at a very high price and the price goes down over time until there are enough people that want to buy the assi- assets that are being sold. And at that point, the auction clears and that's the final price so basically the last bidder who's closing the auction defines the final price which is a price for everyone so it doesn't matter if you bid early or late you will all pay the same price
0: okay i think i think i understand what are the limitations of the dutch auction system versus the other models
1: so yeah the dutch auction mechanism has like several flaws <laughs> one is um, So we have this price curve, right? That goes down over time. And we had to basically start, like once the auction should start, it has to start at a high price uh, because it might be that the price of the underlying asset is moving and we want to ensure that the auction does never start below the actual market price. That's why we always start at two times the uh, market price of the last auction uh, or like the final price of the last auction. And then the price goes down over time. And the problem is because you basically can only bid like every 15 seconds, you have to ensure that there's not a big price drop between just two blocks uh, because you don't want that basically from one block to another, like the uh, price drops like 1% once it's actually in the region where it is close to the market price. So actually everyone selling gets a fair price in the end and -hmm. the mechanism doesn't prevent it by the way it's implemented. And that's why we decided for very long auctions in the Dutch exchange is six hours, so it takes six hours to actually sell your asset and convert it to yeah whatever you wanted to. And, and a lot can happen in, in six
0: hours to the price, right? So it's, a, it's so how are you making improvements to the system so it's it's more commercially ready?
1: We gave or well, we, we basically gave the DX DAO something like a DAO system that we launched recently full control over the Dutch exchange protocol, so. It's not anymore run by Gnosis, and that's why it's also not anymore in the hands of Gnosis to make updates to the system, and it's up to the DAO to decide on how to potentially improve this.
0: And uh, who are the members of DXDAO currently?
1: That's a very good question. I cannot tell you, <laughs> uh, simply because it was kind of anonymous. Mm-hmm. We know a few members. Um, like Loopring is a member and we can see based on the token distribution we know like there were some bigger token holders of Maker and some other projects but I personally cannot identify users with those addresses. People
0: behind addresses and what's the incentive for uh, being a participant in this DAO?
1: So the incentive is that We created a piece of infrastructure, which is actually, or should be fully decentralized. And that should be able, or the idea behind the DXDAO was that it is able to govern decentralized DeFi protocols like the Dutch Exchange. And the reason why this is important also for the Dutch Exchange is because the Dutch Exchange had some functions which made Gnosis the operator, like updating the list of tokens, uh, which would generate a so-called Magnolia token or the possibility to upgrade the entire system. And yeah, we, we wanted to create a truly decentralized exchange. And if we are still the one who is operating it because we have those powers, it's not fully decentralized. And that was the mission of the DXDAO to create this last piece of missing infrastructure that allows this exchange to be fully decentralized. And the goal is that other DeFi products, DeFi systems, they will have similar issues like the Dutch exchange. as yeah, They will still have some functionalities which are which should be executed by operators or someone who can basically control the system. But this should not be a company, ideally. This should be uh, like a governance system like the DXDAO. And I would say it is likely that if you are participating in this DAO, then, of course, controlling all those potential DeFi products is super interesting mm. and valuable. And I think that's why so many people, I think around 400, participated in the end.
0: Oh, wow. So they all bought some sort of tokens that represent a stake in the voting rights for the DAO?
1: So the way it was set up was it was a so-called vote staking period, And yeah, certain so-called reputation tokens were given to those that were staking Ether or ESC20 tokens or were bidding on so-called gen auctions. So it's a DAO stack auction, uh, DAO stack DAO. And the DAO stack DAO requires gen tokens to incentivize people to participate in the DAO. And that's why uh, the DAO had to basically sell some of its reputation. The reputation are the voting rights for GEN tokens. I think 10% of the reputation was sold for GEN tokens. And then 50%, like the majority uh, of reputation or the majority of voting rights were given to those that were trading on the Dutch exchange protocol. So this was a way to, I would say, filter people that are actually interested in the product itself. Yeah, and ultimately we had 400 people or like 400 addresses. I'm not sure if it's 400 distinct uh, personas, but we had 400 addresses that were participating in all those combined.
0: It seems like the first decision the DX DAO is going to make is which uh, tokens are available on Gnosis's uh, DutchX. After that decision is made, is there some sort of roadmap of other governance issues that are bound to pop up?
1: That's something we will see. There's like You can see there's a small community forming around the Dutch uh, DX DAO now. And I think the first thing that has to be clear is what is the narrative of this DAO. And I think we tried to build a narrative, but it appeared that different members have very different ideas of how the DAO should, like what the DAO should do. Mm. (laughs) So I'm really excited to see (laughs) where this will go. Yeah. Because Gnosis, and we made it very clear from the beginning, we step back from the DX DAO, and we will not influence, yeah. This is decision making. Mm-hmm. So I'm really curious to see what the style community now decides on what the style should do next.
0: How, how is this community communicating with each other, by the way? Are you all in a Telegram group or Discord or something?
1: So there's basically a Telegram group right now. Yeah. And it's a public one, so anyone can join and discuss. Yeah
0: anyone can join and discuss and push the discourse in any direction possible. But at the end of the day, you need to actually be one of the guys that has a stake in the DX DAO to to vote. How do you think about members that might come in there and, and sway the opinion of others, but don't have any sort of actual stake in the DAO? How do you filter through the noise and just get the opinions of uh, voters?
1: So that's currently probably for this would need a different type of chat system. Yeah. Uh, something that we're also thinking about, we never executed. Yeah, and it, Just like basically a
0: ETH, ETH messenger kind of thing, yeah, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. Right. You would need some sort of messenger where you can prove that you own certain tokens and only if that's the case, you are able to communicate. Mm-hmm. The system unfortunately doesn't exist yet. If anyone wants to build it, we're happy, I think, to give a grant for this. But yeah, so right now I don't... I, d- I didn't see basically lots of people trying to, well, I don't know if they have reputation or not, but I didn't see that there are certain people just trying to influence other members. Of course, they're just currently just ideas being discussed. Uh, I'm actually happy for every idea that is currently <laughs> brought into discussion. I think it has a lot of potential, but you can also see that's at the very beginning. And I think if you want to make it a real success, there have to be some yeah, thought leaders basically that have a clear vision behind it. Yeah, I'm excited
0: to see what uh, will come of uh, DX DAO. DAOs are much more popular, I think, in the Berlin uh, crypto scene. Uh, it just this is kind of a, a tangential subject, but you know, I've been here for about a week or so, attending different crypto events and uh, uh, getting to know the scene here in Berlin. And I have to say, it's it's quite different from the scene in Silicon Valley, right? Where the scene in Silicon Valley is very focused on. Users and building consumer grade applications. Whereas here, I think people are very meticulous about engineering the low level protocols and layer one platforms to make sure they're sustainable for the mission that is decentralization and permissionless technology. Have you spent any time? I'm sure you spent some time in the US, but what do you think uh, is like the defining ethos of the Berlin scene versus other scenes like America and, and maybe Asia?
1: Yeah, I think I can confirm what you just said. So, especially the Bay Area is focused on yeah, just building user-friendly applications, trying to always build around the user. And I feel in Europe, it's more like trying to build solutions, like engineering solutions to maybe game theoretical problems. <laughs> so kind of from the other side of the spectrum, And I hope at some point we can meet in the middle. (laughs) I guess both can learn from each other. Yeah, I think especially with Gnosis, we also realized that we are building lots of applications which can solve technical problems, but maybe those problems are not even that important for users right now. And it makes more sense to get early validation. So I think that's something you can learn from Silicon Valley. Try to build MVPs that can prove the narrative and the idea that you have and take it from there yep. and not try to build like an old super complex system that is game theoretical sound and super scalable for actually understanding if there's a need for it.
0: Yeah. And on the other hand, I think Silicon Valley can learn a little bit from the uh, Berlin scene about not forgetting why we're really in this. We're, we're here to create technology that anyone can use in the world and, and is censorship resistant and uh, empowering the end user, right? And if you cut corners by having hosted technologies and things that very much just look like uh, a web 2.0 solution, but maybe in the back end it's a crypto thing, you're sort of missing the forest within the trees, right? So I think both of us can kind of learn from each other there.
1: Yeah. And I think I would also recommend, I feel always like, any kind of crypto startup in Silicon Valley has this Silicon Valley factor. It mm-hmm. just gets more visibility. So I would also encourage US investors and generally the community to, yeah, always check out what's going on in Europe. <laughs> uh, I think in terms of technology, as you said, I think we, yeah, we are very focused on technology and building cutting edge products. So yeah, I think it's important maybe that we exchange more and yeah I able to benefit better from each other mm mm-hmm,
0: certainly speaking of commercially grade technology, you guys uh do have a very commercial uh product that has a lot of popularity and this is this is sort of the third spoke of what gnosis is trying to accomplish is after you create uh markets and and then you actually create liquid you start trading in those markets and fostering liquidity, you need to securely hold those conditional tokens somewhere right? And uh, you've created two different products uh, for holding, which I believe are the multi-sig wallet, which has been battle-tested around for several years now, and the Gnosis Safe product. Can you take the audience through sort of the thinking here? Why did you decide to design a, a wallet like the multi Let's start with the multi-sig, the multi-sig wallet. Uh, and why was there a kind of a need for that in the, in the industry as early as you did develop it?
1: Right. So basically, the MultiSIG contract and the MultiSIG interface was developed because we needed a MultiSIG wallet, which allows us to store ERC20 tokens. Uh, it was not the first MultiSIG wallet. So the first MultiSIG wallet, I think, was developed by Gavin Wood in the Ethereum Foundation. And the Ethereum Foundation is using it to secure their own ether. But basically, I, I was considering using it, and I tried it, and I wrote tests for it. And at some point, just realized, oh, MultiSIG, it's actually only true for Ether and no tokens. So it was possible to store Ether, but well, all ERC-20 tokens would have no multi-factor authentication. And that's something we needed because we knew that Gnosis after the token sale will still have O tokens. And that's why we had to basically create a new technology. Yeah, there were also other reasons like I think the the code could be simplified, could be easier to read. And I think especially if you build something that's so important as a wallet, it really benefits to have uh, easy, like like simple code that anyone can easily read and verify themselves.
0: And reduces the attack surface a little bit too, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I think it was really hard for me to read and understand the Ethereum Foundation Multisig. So I decided to, okay, let's simplify this. (laughs) We can create something that's better. And it also offers to secure ERC-20 tokens. And that's how the first version of the multisig was created. And then many other projects just, um, yeah, used it for their own ICO, which was great because this way it became really battle-tested.
0: Yeah, who, who ended up using it for their ICO, if you recall?
1: Yeah, actually Golem was the first project who did it. And I was really surprised because a friend just told me, oh, look at this here. Golem is using this multisig contract now. <laughs> And to be frank, it was even before we did an audit. <laughs> uh, but I hope I guess Golem did an audit before they, yep. they they used it. I guess. But yeah, it was was great. And and then I think because the whole ICO craziness started just after this, everyone just copied what was working, and this was this Norsa multisig. And well, then unfortunately at some point, well, until then there was still like some competition with the Parity multisig. But then unfortunately, at some point, well, there are actually two bugs that were discovered after each other. One was basically allowing anyone to steal all, <laughs> and the other bug was causing that no one could do anything. <laughs> basically, funds were frozen. And yeah, after those two bugs were found and exploited, I think Parity stopped working on six And since then, Gnosis was the main driver for developing smart contract-based wallets. And then, yeah, after the ICO, we decided to, um, I mean, we knew the multisig is popular uh, and has interesting functionality, but you can do a lot more than what we offered at the time. And that's why we decided to create a new product, which we call the Gnosis Safe. Yeah. And yeah, the Gnosis Safe is, you can say is a successor of the Gnosis multisig, multisig. And, uh, yeah, we started with creating something that is, not only for teams to manage collectively their funds but also for personal use and if you see multi-sig in the context of personal use it is two-factor authentication but that's not the only big advantage that you have there are also many other advantages that come with smart contract based wallets among them are that you're able to pay transaction fees not only in ether but in basically any kind of asset that would convince a miner. However, we start only with ERC20 tokens. And that's a big advantage because if you think about users that are being onboarded into the space that want to use a DApp, they usually require uh, an ERC20 token, but then if they actually want to do anything, they always have to pay transaction fees with Ether. So the onboarding process in Ethereum is kind of bad for many reasons but one is that every user has to buy ether to do anything yeah and if you look at how the ethereum protocol is designed then the only reason right now why you need ether is because it's the most convenient way to bribe miners to mine your transaction if miners would integrate paypal and you could do it with (laughs) paypal then you could just pay miners with paypal of course it's not easily possible but there's no intrinsic value in Ether for the specific use case. And that's why yeah, we wanted to open the door (laughs) to allow to use other assets. And now we are actually collaborating also with Austin on the Burner Wallet safe integration. And that's a great use case, right? So there's lots of people that are being onboarded on XDAI and they have only XDAI, uh, so DAI. And let's say they won a prediction market competition on XDAI. And now they have like a few hundred DAI. They might not want to store it in a burner wallet because a burner wallet, yeah, it's not the most secure (laughs) (laughs) way to to store your funds. So you want to move it to mainnet eventually into something more secure like Gnosis Safe. And now what you can do is you can basically withdraw your die from burner wallet. And with this die, you can create a Gnosis Safe contract on the Ethereum mainnet. And because it's an Ethereum, uh, because it is a safe contract, now you can send transactions from this SAFE contract paying with DAI. So you will never have to buy Ether.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, really interesting. How have different projects used SAFE to start building more uh, consumer-facing applications?
1: Yeah, so I would say not necessarily consumer-facing. Mostly um, users are using SAFE contracts because they want to increase security. So using it in DevOps process or in any kind of payout system. In terms of user experience, I would say what's most interesting is that only with smart contract based wallets, you are able to batch transactions. So basically, usually like if uh, if you create a Maker CDP, you have to do many transactions to actually finish this process. I
0: think it's like six transactions, right? Yeah, at least six transactions.
1: Let's say you want to use it for creating leverage, then it's even more so. Uh, because you have to use a die again to buy Ether, and then you can continuously do this process. And now what you can do with an, a smart contract-based wallet is you can combine all those into just one Ethereum transaction. So you, the user has to only sign once, the user has only to wait one single time until this transaction is mined, and that's it.
0: And that's it. And they they don't have to... the Entity or company or someone that's hosting the smart contract wallet can have the ability to pay for gas uh, as well. We just had Argent on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Right. So they're doing a lot of amazing work. Uh, yeah, it's like Arjun is loads.
1: awesome. I really love what they're doing. I think they have amazing UX. But what we realized is there are lots of advantages of using smart contract based wallets, um, like the batch transactions. But we have to basically make a step towards dev developers to benefit from those because dev developers will not adopt their applications just for smart contract based wallets because they're just not enough users right now that are using smart contract based wallets. So what we want to offer, and it's maybe a shout out to all developers creating DAPs right now, uh, we would like to offer an SDK that allows every user that's using your DAP to create a smart contract based wallet that can be used to interact with your application. So the user doesn't have to install the save. or so. can use MetaMask or any other wallet, but it will always interact with the DApp via this contract account.
0: I think it's going to be a standard design pattern for developers going forward. It abstracts away a lot of the user experience issues that currently face. I think it's going to be very standard. Okay, let's talk quickly about the business model and the token model, right? So you've essentially sold a bunch of GNO tokens to a wide audience of people. And how do those people accrue value on the tokens? How have you designed the tokens so that they're value creative in the long run? And also uh, this is all tied to, there's several ways you can like return value to users. You can also build valuable products as well if you're, I guess, selling more so equity, but generally like what's the strategy around value accrual and uh, business
1: models? Right. So the goal of Gnosis is to capture all value that's created in O tokens. The way how O tokens allow you to yeah, capture this value is we have it two token model, (laughs) many people are confused by that, but I tried to explain it. So we were selling the GNO token and what you can do with the GNO token is you can lock those tokens for some time. And during this time, they generate OWL tokens, secondary tokens, and uh, those OWL tokens are worth one US dollar each, and they can be used to pay for services in our applications. So the first application that we released that allows to do this is the Dutch exchange. So if you're trading on the Dutch exchange, there is something called liquidity contribution, which basically takes up to uh, 0.5% of your trade and moves this over to the next auction to incentivize continuous trading on the platform. And now what you can do is you can uh, basically use OWL instead. And yeah, that's one way to use OWL tokens. We actually also allowed to use OWL tokens to pay for Ethereum transactions mm. <laughs> and denotes the SAFE because an ERC-20 token. So if you have OWL tokens, you can basically uh, operate and send transactions using your SAFE instead of paying with Ether.
0: Uh-huh. And are those converted to Ether so that it pays for gas?
1: Uh, Yeah. So actually right now we have a relayer service because miners currently will not accept uh, anything <laughs> right. else but Ether. So we have to do this. Um, However, I guess in the future, especially with ETH 2.0, I guess miners or like stakers will accept any kind of fee.
0: Very interesting. Um, And is the overall strategy to be a developer platform or will you ever try to extract value by uh, building different products on top of Gnosis?
1: Uh, So we aim to be a developer platform. That's like how we think we can generate the most value. And that I think is also what we are better at. (laughs) So we try to build exchange platforms, we try to build this prediction market platform. And the save I would say is the only real product, however, like say consumer facing product. However, also there we would like to go into a direction where third parties can easily also integrate their own applications into it. So it should also be a platform in that sense. We also create one other user-facing product which is a prediction market application and yeah that's it's a company or like a product that is fully regulated and that's uh, maybe the interesting part of it so right now we have a few prediction market systems out there but none of those actually has a license that allows them to operate it and yeah we will be the first uh, company that actually has a license to operate regulated prediction markets.
0: I can't imagine how tough that was to get that license and go through the process.
1: It took over one and a half years. Wow.
0: (laughs) And what was the particular license that uh, you pursued?
1: So it's called the DLT license, distributed ledger technology license, and it allows us to create any kind of prediction market other than markets around sports betting.
0: Very interesting. And which regulatory body in in Europe did you work with?
1: Uh, It was in Gibraltar. So yeah, we worked with regulators in Gibraltar. And that also means it's quite restricted (laughs) in terms of uh, where we can offer those markets. So we will have to block United States, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you could argue like why do you do this? <laughs> like it's so much effort and um, you have to restrict yourself so much in terms of who can actually see and use the product in the end. But what you, what we also have to understand is that we have to make a step towards regulators. We have to convince regulators, or actually we have to convince the society <laughs> that prediction markets can add value, that they're allowing us to surface information that otherwise would be hidden and that we as society can yeah benefit from it and that they should be allowed. And only this is a way forward to convince regulators in the United States to be more friendly towards prediction markets and finally will allow us also to operate elsewhere.
0: It's a step that must be taken, right? Because you could attract users that used your prediction market. Maybe they're using it with like a VPN or accessing it in a way where they don't they feel like they're doing something wrong. But if you go out and get regulated, yeah, maybe there's some onboarding and KYC AML restrictions and you know, you you make your technology less permissionless at least at the layer 3 level, but you also win the trust of users, right? That hey, this is a product that I can use where I'm not going to get in trouble for using it. So right, it's a necessary and step.
1: <laughs> I, I agree like and I think We underappreciate sometimes what regulators do for us. We see it more like a burden. Mm -hmm. Uh, But of course, it's important to prevent money laundering, theft, and so on. And for this, it's important to understand why those regulations are in place and how we can efficiently implement it to actually achieve the goal to ensure that that your platform is not used for money laundering.
0: Yeah, definitely. This is really
1: exciting that,
0: you know, you guys are going to get regulated here and uh, move on with the regulated product. I hope you have the same luck in the U.S. I know it's a total pain in the butt. Uh, You know, (laughs) uh, several companies, I I won't mention names, you know, have tried to get regulated for prediction markets in the U.S. with the CFTC. It's very confusing. There's about three or four different licenses that the CFTC offers, and it's unclear which one is best suited for this. And I think they were all going for the designated contract market uh, license, but even even after uh, pursuing that for several months with a lot of different legal counsel, uh, you know, nothing's really happened. But hey, it's a multi-year process, and maybe we'll see something next year.
1: Yeah, I think it will take a long time. We really have to convince everyone that prediction markets add value. Yeah, and once you once there's agreement in that there is value in this, I think it will be much easier to yeah to convince regulators and be more friendly towards, yeah, offering prediction markets in the U.S.
0: Absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure having you, Stefan. Uh, thanks so much for hopping on the show.
1: Thank you, Thomas. It was a pleasure, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Uh, one final housekeeping question, just so I can include things in my show notes. Where can people get in touch with Gnosis if they're a developer? Where can people get educated about the work that Gnosis is doing?
1: Yeah, so ideally, you just go to our website, uh, gnosis.io, Uh, there's a link to the telegram channel, a link to our blog link to our Github, um, everything we develop is open source and we would like to onboard many developers. So we have lots of documentation and we also want to incentivize you to, yeah, to work around our like, or to work with our ecosystem and build on top. And for this, we have the Gecko grants. So it's a grant program by Gnosis. And yeah, we are happy to see your applications. I think the next deadline is for September. Very cool. And yeah, we want to encourage everyone to see, We are open for all kind of ideas um, to see how you think Gnosis can evolve and what is missing to make it really successful.
0: Absolutely. Uh, well, thanks again, Stefan. Thank you for joining us today. Please remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or The Wire blog, whatever works for you. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks again for listening.